Hey everybody, Josh Sheridan here with the Barely Legal Podcast. Here with my third guest on this Friday, uh, but by no means the least important guest. I've been excited to have him on. Uh, depending on who you ask, he either has the first or second best beard in family law here in Tampa. Um, you can guess who the other person is. Um, I'm not sure how I first became aware of you, but obviously I knew Amber, and at some point you kind of revealed yourself. So I, I don't know a lot about you other than what I know of you uh, from social media, but I know that you share space with her. I don't know is if it's that you're a partner with her, just share space. I know, I believe you've got a background from the military. Uh, I've actually sat in your office when you weren't there when I'm meeting there, and I've you know gotten to yelling fits with Ingrid Hooglander in your office. So maybe that energy you noticed when you came in. I know you're really big into the CrossFit scene and and, and the fitness scene. So, um, and and despite your age, you have grandchildren, don't you? I do. Yeah, I have three grandchildren. How old are you? I am fifty. Okay, you you look great. I mean, I I, I have considered you a contemporary. I, you, you know, I'm going to be forty five in December, but. Yeah, you've got you've 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 done li- done a lot of living in your fifty years. Yeah, well, and thanks for not saying that I look good for fifty. I appreciate. No, you just that. look yeah. good for yeah, for no you. matter what age you are. So, yeah. are you a Florida guy by by origin, or did you move here, or how did that all come to pass? I grew up on Long Island, New York. I was oh, actually born in Manhattan, guy. so I was a New Yorker. Okay, and then I joined the military in '88. Okay, and I spent uh, almost four years in the military, and from there, I had these delusions of grandeur that I was going to be a real estate mogul. Oh, really? I, I Up in New York? No, well, that's... The, you might have been president, yeah. There, therein <laughs> lies the rub. And actually, yeah. I think back then I had read one of Trump's books. Oh, yeah, and sure. he was... Uh, sure, a, it was a, very informative and helpful on how to become a business mogul. I own no real estate now other than my home. Right. So that explains Tells how you. useful it was, right? Right, right. Uh, but I figured Florida was less expensive. And I obviously, the military doesn't pay a huge salary, so I yeah. saved a little bit of money. And I thought I could make my way as some sort of landlord or real estate mogul in Florida. And that's how I ended up here. So New York until you were 18? Yes. All right. So you grew up in New York proper. Now, Long Island, is that city? Is that more suburban? Or where would you put that kind of in the, the pantheon of New York, New York City? Long Island is the suburbs. Okay, it's it's on the outskirts of New York. It's not in the five middle boroughs. class, upper class kind of. Long Island itself generally is mid to upper class. Okay. Uh, I was I would say I don't want to say low class, but maybe in some ways I am. I, low I'm class, low class, but, so yeah. you're speaking the speaking the choir on that one. <laughs> Economically, sure. probably uh, lower income, uh, single mom. We lived in an apartment above a deli, uh, then moved to an apartment above a, a drugstore. But in the school I went to was uh, predominantly very wealthy kids. So the area I grew up in was Oceanside, New York. Okay. Uh, relatively wealthy area, high tax bracket, good schools. What did your parents do? Uh, don't know my dad. Okay. Uh, so truly single parent with my mom. And my mom, uh, secretarial things, administrative things. So Any siblings? No siblings. I'm an only child. Me too. Yeah. That oh, explains well, why we have the oh, similar the, beards. This, you know? there's, we've got now a whole other thing to talk about. That's <laughs> one of my favorite topics of conversation. We'll get there in a minute, though. So um, growing up Long Island, uh, single mom, only child, uh, you know, it, it, now that you're 50, do you look back on how that molded you into who you've become today? Did that make you more independent? You know, I'm always interested by the impact of a family dynamic on a child and what that turns them into. 
whether it's mom not there, dad not there, raised by grandparents, raised by aunts and uncles, big family, small family. Have you considered how that impacted you and, and kind of made you who you are? Uh, absolutely. Uh, I think the one thing is work ethic. I, I feel like I have a very strong work ethic, and I think that's a product of watching my mom work. Sure. Uh, she was the last person. She didn't want to take a handout from anybody, so she would work uh, side jobs in addition to a regular job. She Not that she was never home, but it always was apparent to me that she was working to earn money. Is she still money. around? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, and healthy and okay? Uh, she is healthy. I can tell you a story about that in a while, too. But sure. I think that helped a lot. And being an only child, of course, we crave and demand all the attention uh, and to adults. Well, it's great. So you guys changed, were kind of a right? couple in a, in a way. That's right. not, not to be perverse, but I mean, right. I, I kind of, my dad was much older than my mom, so my. Uh, I think my mom leaned on me for entertainment. So my mom and dad wouldn't go out to the movies. My mom and I would go out <laughs> to the movies. And my mom and dad wouldn't go out to dinner. My mom and I would go out to dinner. So in a way, you know, not the same, but similar type of situation. Yeah, but uh, let me tell you a funny story but about my mom. Because yeah. you asked if she yeah. was healthy. And I I'm horrible with dates and times. Sure. And uh, as you get older, I think this uh, hits everybody the same way. Right. But she had an aneurysm about 10 years ago, a brain bleed. Oh, wow. Uh, the funny part was she's fine okay. today. Yeah. And uh, she's one of the small percentage, according to the doctors, of people that really survive it. And she really has no long-term effects. But the funniest part about it is my mom is so incredibly cheap. Uh, and I take on this cheap gene. Uh, it frustrates my wife, but we make a good balance. Uh, she had a headache, and she literally, it brought her to her knees. She fell to the floor. She grabbed her cell phone. She called 911 because she realized something was really wrong. Right. And she said, tell them not to break my door down because I just uh, bought a new door. Yeah. So she was more worried about like the dad. door yeah. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. keeping herself. that intact than herself. So I, I, I rib her about that today. That's uh, hilarious. Still, so. Now, if, if you don't mind me asking, you say you don't know your father. Did she talk to you at all about him? Is that something that you've asked her about? Or uh, We've asked. We don't really have a lot of information about okay. it. It's never been in my life. I've never known him. Uh, we recently did the 23andMe, trying to find some information. What did you find that? out? I, that I am 35% Scandinavian, okay. uh, 30% Welchish, sure, yeah. Welch, and then, uh, oddly, I have 1.2% Central Asian uh, in my background, which I thought was interesting. I would not have guessed that. Yeah, yeah I did it too, and, and much like you, not Scandinavian, but I was thinking I was going to fall squarely between Scotland and Ireland, but somehow 10% Ashkenazi Jew worked its way into... I'm there as well. We're the kin. Equation. There you go. Yeah. I, I, was, I was thrilled by it. I called all my Jewish friends and said, I'm one of you, <laughs> when's dinner, you know? So, uh, well, that's very cool. So uh, then striking out to the military, was that hard to leave your mom? I mean, or was that something that was needed at that time? Or Because well, I imagine you probably were pretty reliant on each other. Yeah, well, my mom's very independent. Okay. I became very independent. Uh, truth be told, I was not the greatest kid. And, really? Uh, I did not behave uh, really? the best when I, I was a kid. Have, I wouldn't have guessed that. Well, we all change over time. What was time. your thing? Well, my thing, I, I actually, in 10th grade, decided that I didn't want to go to school anymore. So because someone had, school? Well, I literally quit school okay. in 10th grade. Okay. Because someone had offered me a job at a manufacturing place making something like, I don't know what minimum wage was back then, but maybe... Three dollars and thirty Huge, big, cents an big hour. Money, yeah. yeah, back then. I'm what do I need this junk for? Gonna be king of New York, That's right? Right. Yeah. So I ended up dropping out for six months, and then I quickly realized that this was not the way to do things. 
I went back to school. My uncle happened to be chief of the local fire department there. Okay. He was able to strike some sort of deal with the principal to allow me to go to summer school, double up on classes. So I was oh, able nice. to graduate on time. Uh, but I just really was kind of uh, lost yeah. a little bit as a kid. Did the, did the military help you kind of gain focus, gain direction? Oh, absolutely. Now, where did the military come from? Was that is there military in the family, or were you one of the first? Or my grandfather on my mom's side, obviously, you don't sure. know the other side yeah. of the family. He was in World War II. Okay, but what, what I, branch do you know? He was in the army. Okay, and what did you go into? I went into the army. Well, there you go. Yeah. All right. So, where did you do basic training? Went basic training Fort McClellan, Alabama, which oh, wow. has since been defunct. Uh, okay. You can go on YouTube and see some pretty cool, creepy videos done by drone. Abandoned military Just base, there. still standing. Why? Just underfunded, or I, I think back then was it uh, Bush or Clinton? One of the two in the early '90s were starting to talk Pulling about defund and, yeah. and scale back, and those were that was one of the victims of one of the cuts at some point in time. Now, how did you find basic training? Because I, you know, I, I've, I, you know, around that age, thought about it myself, but I'm. I don't like being told what to do. I don't like authority. Uh, you know, so I, I just think it was going to be a brutal experience for me, and so it didn't happen. How did you, How did you find it? Did you fall right in, or was there a little bit of a getting used to it, or how was it for you? Everything that you just described and believed it would be, it was because right. I really was not a huge fan of authority either. So I really do thank the military. I got way more out of the military than they got out of me for helping me mold into somewhat of a, a more responsible citizen. Young man. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, did you go overseas? Did you Were you stationed out of the country at all? Did you get to do anything like that? Yeah, I was stationed my, my first duty What station. years would this have been? 88 through 92. So you're right leading up to or during the first Iraq invasion, right? Yeah, so my first uh, duty station was in Herlong, California. It's, okay. uh, it's declassified now, so I can talk about it, sure. but it was a top-secret nuclear site. Uh -huh. uh, so that was a horrible duty station, middle of the desert, middle of nowhere. Closest town was Reno, Nevada. I think of Day of the Dead. Have you ever seen Day of the Dead where they're sitting in the nuclear bunker and Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. That's probably where they filmed it. They probably though. filmed it there. Yeah. <laughs> so I spent one painful year there. From there, they sent me to Germany. I was oh, in wow. Germany for about nine months, and then Desert Storm kicked off. I spent time in Saudi Arabia. Uh, I was in Iraq, Iran uh, for almost a good solid year. At that point, I realized this military shit is not for me. There's a lot of meat on the bone, though. Let's go through Germany, Iraq, Iran, Saudi Arabia. So tell me about Germany. So Germany, I was a military policeman, and we did what's called garrison duty, military translation. Sure. You know Lee just... Perlman? Denman, Denman, and Perlman? Yeah. I, I... So he, he was an MP, too. Anyways, we talked about that a little bit on his episode. Anyway, go ahead. So we did garrison duty, okay. uh, which is law enforcement work. Right. And uh, that was a weird shift. We had three mids, three midnights. I'm sorry, three midnights, three swing shifts, and three day shifts, and three days off. So it was not the most favorable schedule going. Right. But essentially... You don't have a family. Who cares? But if you... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was on a base where we had 30,000 infantry. So oh, wow. my job essentially was a glorified bouncer. Yeah. I would either be breaking up fights between husband and wife. Right. Or fights between the infantrymen when they came back. Look, these guys spent three months in the field, and their job is war. So they are high-strung fighters. Well, I, I, here's my perception of you, and tell me if I'm wrong, but you're, you're, you're a formidable-looking character. I mean, you, you look like you can, you know, you can handle yourself, and, and I, I would say maybe people think that about me, but personality-wise, very docile, kind of low-key, you know, 
maybe passive. I don't know if maybe I'm 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 picturing you differently than you perceive yourself, but would you say that you're that way? Which way? Looking formidable? I'll take that compliment. Well, but sure. as far as docile? Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm calm. I, I like to have a calming presence. But yeah. keep in mind, I'm 50, and you're talking about well, the back then, were you wild-eyed and ready for ready to throw down? Or I, I, I was ready to fight. I was more high-strung. Really, really? Uh, we used to call it stick time. Yeah, you, you'd have the stick back then. Yeah, and, you know, they called stick time when a fight broke out. We were all Go around whack people's knees out. Who who thought it was a good idea to give a bunch of 18 and 19 year olds a gun? And a nightstick and yeah. say, you are now law enforcement you're in charge. and you're in charge. Yeah. So, I mean, we would converge and, you know, rough people up. And, yeah. You know, it, it was a different Paul Phipps back then. Sure. Uh, but, I, I, I did, couldn't picture that about you, but that's interesting. Yeah. So that was Germany. And then where from Germany? Part of my tour in Germany, we were deployed to Iraq. Okay. So spent a good 10 to 12 months there for all How the campaigns. That? Scary? Uh, in the beginning, it was scary. I, th I think the scariest moment that I can point to, I'm not a very religious person, mm -hmm. and part of an MP's job in combat, because I told you about garrison duty, but combat duties are very different. You have, a, you have a role in war as well. And one of the MP's duties are to create lanes and directions for the tanks to go where they need, need to, to go. go. Yeah. So we set up, I don't know where all this shit came from, but sure. we had giant pieces of plywood, and we wrote in red... Uh, spray paint the numbers. Yeah. So these tanks had to go. And up until that point, we were really just guarding the support people. Right. Water trucks, uh, medics, translators. We waited, and it was like something out of a fucking movie. The earth literally started oh, shaking. Bombs going off. Guns well, well, it firing. wasn't bombs. Oh. It was it was our tanks going in oh, for okay. the crossing into the border. Oh, wow. We were in Iran. Yeah. Dust cloud, and then it was probably. 30 straight minutes. I couldn't hear anything. I went down. It's not loud. Yeah. I mean, there were hundreds, Josh. Oh, wow. Hundreds of tanks rolling by our Humvee. I was so scared. I didn't shit my pants, yeah. but I reached down. And the chaplain, when you go to war in the military, the chaplain comes and gives everyone a Bible. Yeah. No matter what denomination you are, the Bible was probably as big as my hand. I picked up that little thing and, just, and sat on top of the yeah. Humvee. And for the first time in my life, I started reading that thing cover to cover because oh, I just wow. didn't know what to do. Right, that that right. was the scariest point in, in time for me. Did you get a little bit more numb to it or a little bit more used to it as time went on? As time went on, I realized at the time how dominating the United States military was. Right. There was literally, as an MP, the rest of your duties during wartime are to collect POWs, prisoners of war. Okay. So we would get a call from the tanks. I mean... Come up, we got 100 POWs. They were going so fast, they wouldn't even wait for us to come. They would take their weapons, they would put them in a pile, and they would have the Bradley roll over the weapons, crushing them back uh -huh. and forth. Oh, wow. And then they would just abandon them in the desert. Just So you just had a bunch of people walking around in the desert with nothing? Yeah, uh, little uh, hordes, I guess, so to speak. Like uh, would they fight to... you when you had to try and get them into a group, or did they? at that point they were pretty much done? They, they were done before that. Yeah. So one of the fascinating things that I learned, we did have a translator with us, which we were lucky because most of the Iraqi soldiers did not speak English. Right. We would get there, and if, are you familiar with an AK-47? Oh, for sure. So they have the woodstock, yeah, at yeah. least the old ones. Yeah. All the stocks were gone. And I asked the translator, what, what happened to the stocks? Firewood? And, yeah. Oh, It's wow. cold in the yeah, desert, man. Yeah, yeah. And the, whether it was Saddam or whoever was in charge, they sent those guys to the front line. They took their boots, 
and they left him with nothing. The boots were taken, so they couldn't run and retreat. Right. These guys were so happy to see us. Oh yeah, the warm and, meal, two hots in a cot. Yeah. Yeah. They were. They all had a little piece of paper. So the United States uses propaganda during yeah. wartime, and they dropped hundreds, millions of leaflets. Yeah. And these leaflets, I, I should have brought one for you today. I'll you got some? I, oh, I have. Another. I would. Uh, please, I would love yeah, it. I'll bring it, and it's in Arabic. I don't oh, know sure. if that's the right term. But essentially, there's a picture, and it shows coalition forces handing food oh, yeah. to Iraqis. Yeah. And the re- interesting thing that didn't, uh, didn't escape me is the coalition forces were drawn to look like Them? the Iraqis. Oh, sure. Because there were coalition forces of that right. ethnicity, and, I mean, they really thought it through. So these guys were holding these things up. They wanted food. They wanted care. I really think that they thought their prayers were answered, yeah. that we showed up and we didn't kill them. Right. Well, I mean, when you look at war-torn areas, so much of the time it's people being kept from a basic standard of living, you know, and being made to do certain things. So, you know, the 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 potential for the enemy coming in and things might getting better, you know, is is not necessarily unique to that area. I've heard stories, and I don't remember if it was the first Iraq or the second Iraq war, but they they would talk about. They would uh, get these people and they would start training them so that they could have their own police, they could have their own military and help them. And this was being done during the day. And then at night, they would be watching the roads and people would be coming out, placing IEDs on the roads. And it was the same person that they had just been training during the day, all these different tactics, and they were using them against them at night. I don't know which one that was, but I heard there was a lot of back and forth as far as allegiances and and, and who was doing what for whom. And so... Mm -hmm. Was that your experience at all? Did you did, was there was IEDs as big in the first one as it was in the second one? There were some IEDs okay. in the first one, and what you're thinking of is the second one. Okay. We did absolutely no, no training. Okay. We literally went in there, okay. destroyed, took over, imposed martial law. Yeah, uh, that was the end of my tour there. We imposed martial law and took right. over a town called Safwan, Iraq, and it was our job to, to hold that and keep the order in Safwan. Did you but, get to go into any of the palaces or see any of the riches or do any of that stuff? We we did not. No, okay. Safwan is uh, it's a border town okay, so it's between not as... between Kuwait okay. and Iraq. So okay. that was kind of the the zone that they invaded, right? So we took that and created a, a buffer between Iraq and, and Kuwait until things. And then worked. you said you also went to Iran. Yeah, and uh, I don't know if this is publicized in history, but the Third Armored Division, which was the division I was attached to with the 92nd MP Company, we actually drove into Iran. I'm guessing this was without Iran's permission. Permission, yeah. And we attacked from the backside. Oh, so wow. that strategy and the desert is so big and so vast, and I, I just don't think Iran knew. And keep in mind, Iran and Iraq had just finished, I think, a seven-year war. Right. Or, you know, on the cusp, but... Iran was just desert. Yeah. I didn't actually go to Iran and see any Iranians, okay. but we physically were in, in, in the Iran. country of Iran okay. to go into Iraq. And that was towards the end of your four years? Yeah. Let's see. I go in in 88. The, that war started in 90. So probably latter part. Getting to 92? Yeah, latter part. All right. And so after you were overseas, did you come back and do any time again in the States, or, or were you pretty much out after that? Overseas, uh, well, Iraq, back to Germany. Stayed in Germany, and then I had mentioned that the government was doing a uh, scale back. Right. And they said, if anyone wants to get out a little bit early, let us know. So my hand yeah, shot, shot up shot like right a up. dart because I said, this shit, with someone picking me up by the scruff of the neck and flicking me across the world with little to no warning. Right. 
for unknown duration for the birds. is not a life yeah. for me. And you hadn't done college yet at that point, had you? No, no okay. college, no college. All right, so then when you came back, what was the story? Did you go right into school, or did you yeah. work for a little bit? Or I had the GI Bill. Okay. So I, I had uh, various jobs, started going to school, uh, and at some point I started, I got a real job at J.P. Morgan Chase. Oh, wow. Yeah. Very cool. Doing what? Uh, way back then, I was doing collecting, debt collecting. Okay. This was in what, mid-90s? Early 90s, yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. All right. And so how does law school enter the uh, focus? I was at J.P. Morgan for 18 years. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah. My last job there was assistant general counsel. Uh, during the course of my tenure at J.P. Morgan, uh, I ascended through the ranks relatively quickly. I went to school while I was working. I graduated from University of Tampa, actually first. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Graduated cool. from St. Petersburg Junior College. Oh, I, I'm an alumni. I yeah. did a summer school, one class there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we have a lot in common. How we do. Yeah. Uh, then I graduated from UT, and then I was happy at, at J.P. Morgan. Right. By virtue of the corporate monster, they continue to reassess, and my job would get cut, and then I'd get a new, new job, job, and the job would get cut again. And I was thinking, same kind of similar epiphany. Shit, man, this is no way to live with every two years them no saying, stability. well, we're trimming the fat. Yeah. You have no job. Are you married during this time yet? Yes. Okay, when did you get married? I was married before I went into okay. the military, okay. and that marriage ended horribly. Oh, really? Yeah, horribly. Okay. Uh, I have a uh, beautiful young daughter, not young anymore, but my daughter came from that marriage. Okay. And then I remarried in 98, okay. 97 or 98. Okay. Yeah. All right. And, and did that, did that uh, influence you at all in your decision to get into family law? Or is that something that molded you in, in your practice of family law, that first marriage? My first horrible wife? Yes. 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 Okay. She was, uh, I, all the horror stories that you and I experienced as that attorneys, was, yeah. I can see as a, a, a dad. And back then, the courts weren't as liberal, liberal yeah. so it was a more difficult thing. But it was man, very it, much, uh, what did they call it? The, the, there was a, there was a, a presumption or a... Uh, Tender years doctrine or whatever it was, trying to put the child with the mom, and you know. Yeah. Anyway, um, so uh, you decide after being reassigned so many times at J.P. Morgan, that's where law school entered the picture. Yeah, I, I was either going to go for my master's or for law school because J.P. Morgan, great company to work for. Right. And I just do want to go back and say I have no ill will towards my former wife, and I said she, it was a horrible situation, but time. we were both young, yeah, yeah, so yeah. I, I don't want to. It's okay. I'm, right. sure, I'm sure she's listening. It's, it'll be okay. <laughs> but it, but I was going to go for my MBA or for law, and I took the LSAT. I did pretty well, and J.P. Morgan paid for my entire law degree. Oh my God! Yeah, and I went to Stetson. So score. They paid. Why did you go to Stetson? I graduated in '08. Okay, so yeah. I was there from '99 to '02. Yeah. Okay. All right. Oh, wait. were you there around Damian McKinney's time? Feel like he was. I there did the part-time program. Oh, okay. J.P. Morgan was paying for it. Okay. And they wanted me to move from okay. a compliance role into okay. g assistant general counsel. Okay. Role. So I, I don't. I don't know if he was there at that time. Gotcha. 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 So you were at Stetson. Did you live on campus or did you live in Gulfport? Or no, I worked. I worked full time. Really? Yeah. I, I was a VP at uh, J.P. Morgan. Oh I, wow. I managed the compliance department. I had like. 80-something employees. Oh, my God. I can't uh, imagine doing both those things. Yeah. And I, I, I hustled and worked. And you asked before uh, from my mom's influence and my grandmother's influence. Yeah. Both of them were working. Nothing making, to it. You yeah, just, just yeah. the fifth way. So yeah. um, wh where along the way do you meet Amber? Did you law school or? or? I met Amber at uh, the gym. Okay. That makes sense because I know she was 
really into bodybuilding or that sort of thing at one point. Yeah. Yeah. So I met her in passing. Oddly enough, we were both lawyers when we met. And so I, I was going to ask you, when you left Stetson, where did you go right off the bat? I, I stayed for at J.P. Morgan. Okay, they just you... transferred me as a, as an assistant oh, general wow. counsel. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. So I worked uh, sir, looking at mortgages, credit uh, credit cards, auto, that type of portfolio. Oh wow! So I did a bunch of things. Obviously, uh, it sounds way more important than it was. Well, uh, J.P. But, Morgan, I just think of Wolf of Wall Street, and yeah. you know. <laughs> and I was a vice president, and there are literally thousands of vice presidents. Yeah, yeah. So I, I just sounds good. Of, yeah, yes, sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good on the resume, but in reality, you're just one of many. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So how long did you do that for? I think I did that for maybe four years as assistant general counsel, three to four years. So we're in like 2012 now, 2011. Yeah, that sounds about right. All right, maybe a little, maybe a little early. Yeah, 20, 2011. All right, and then so from there, what happens? Well, I had some sort of existential crisis sitting in my office. I had a cushy job. I, I, I literally, it was easy. You kind of have these chapters in your life. Yeah, I've lived many lives. You Josh. have, you yeah. have. Yeah. Well, you say everybody's always like, I don't know what I have to talk about. I mean. <laughs> We're two thirds of the way through this, and we haven't broken to take a breath yet. You're you're doing awesome. Well, um, I've got lots to talk about. I just don't know if it's interesting. Well, every, every everybody's interesting. Yeah. Everybody's interesting. So, uh, you had an existential crisis. What was that? That was just you're growing tired of the the, the rat race with J.P. Morgan. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm getting assignments, and one of the I think the last assignment I had was to to do a lot of research on the marijuana laws because obviously J.P. Morgan as a lender wants to figure out if they can get into that space because yeah. they see there's a big opportunity. Right find out the various state laws, do a lot of research, and you do a couple months of work, and then all of a sudden someone who you don't know, don't see, says, well, we yeah. kind of don't care. Yeah. Let's work on something else. And I, I felt like, you know, I'm, I'm getting time. a little older, yeah. and what am I doing? Right. I, I'm not really contributing the way I'd like to contribute to the world. Right. So do you go right into family law, or is there a, a, a middle period there, or how does that work? I opened my own shop, okay, and I was doing that part time while I was working at, at J.P. Morgan. Okay, they let to, you do that. Yeah, just test the water. Oh, okay. we, I had to sign uh, non compete sure. disclaimers, and I had to make sure that I didn't take in any clients that could be any conflict right. with J.P. Morgan. So no debt collection, you know, anything with evictions, that type of stuff. Right. And family law just just came naturally. I, I don't know how I got into it, but I started to get a lot of clients. And I had, uh, I was friendly at that point in my life, so I knew a lot of people at J.P. Morgan. Yeah. And when people got wind that I was a lawyer, I mean, I had instant business. That's and then amazing. It, be it became enough that when I had this existential crisis, I said, "Let me just do this full time." I talked to my wife, who was super supportive. She says, "I don't know why you didn't do this earlier, five yeah. years ago. You'd be much happier." So you're set up differently than a lot of people that go into family law because you're coming into it later in life. You're coming into it having gone through some pretty uh, grave uh, experiences in the military. You've been through a rough divorce. You've worked different jobs. You've grown up in a single-parent household. So you kind of have some uh, context and some texture that the, the vast majority of family law attorneys may not have. Do you feel that that sets you up better emotionally to deal with the type of work that we do? Um, does it affect you? Does it impact you? And I mean, obviously it does everybody, but do you think you're able to kind of weather it better than uh, others might because of your experiences? I, I can't speak to other people's ability to weather it and how they handle it. But I have I, a shitty ability to weather it and handle <laughs> it, so you can compare yourself to me in that regard. I, I do think I'm in a unique position, and I, and I think the most unique thing, uh, having the experience of going to war though it was uh, you know, a hands-down complete victory, 
knowing that people died, knowing that people were going to try to kill me, that there were bombs going off, that we were in a very dire situation, even at a young age, I'm not sure I fully grasped it. But as time went on, I think I often reflect. And sometimes people ask me, how are you so calm? And I'll tell Amber always says, you know, how are you so calm or how does this not bother you? And, I, you know, I, I've seen I, I've had f- a couple friends die uh, in the war. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I've seen people die. I've seen dead bodies. And I realized that this is a temporary situation. Yeah. And when people look back on it, you know, you do your best. But this is not terminal. There are so many bigger problems you could have. Right. That dealing with this is almost luck to be lucky to do it. Well, you know, it's funny. Uh so I, we have a consultant here, and uh, this week there was a couple of days that things kind of got sideways, and the consultant was reaching out to me. She said, are you okay? And I was like, I do great in chaos. It's when things are going well that I have a big problem. When, thing, when everything's on fire and the building's collapsing around, I feel completely calm because reality is living up to my negative expectations. It's when things are going well that I'm like, what's going on here? You know, something's horrible going to happen. So that's one thing. But then the other thing was not comparing it to war, but you know, I recently had both my parents pass away, Mm. my dad in 2018 and my mom in 2019. And I think that has changed me in a lot of ways in how I face things. Uh, You know, I'm not, I, I don't think I'm thrown out of whack by politics as I was. I'm not as thrown out of whack by this pandemic that we're facing as I was. I don't sweat the little stuff quite as much. Now I'm also on Prozac and doing therapy. So it's a, <laughs> it's a cocktail of all these things. But, um, you know, I, it, it, you do these life experiences, you know, loss and, you know, some of the bigger clouds that you can have in your life do kind of give you a perspective on things that you don't just have naturally. So, mm-hmm. Um, now, I know that uh, you at some point, and so tell, tell me, did you answer my question? Are you in Amber Partners or, or how is that set up? Is it a partnership of PAs? I know there's all these different. I, I did not answer your question. The IRS isn't listening, by the way. Well, we, we actually recently separated oh, or, did you? or decoupled our firms for okay. tax purposes. Okay. But we're still in the same office. We still share the same space. What was, the, what was it that uh, Chris Martin and Gwyneth Paltrow did? They did like a social uncoupling or there was, there was that's some new wavy way of saying it. But you guys are still in the same office, right? Yeah, absolutely. And we're okay. so best of friends that we've actually are, uh, my wife and I and Amber and her husband went to Europe together a couple years ago. I remember that trip. Together. I was watching that online and super jealous. A- and uh, this fucking pandemic has it's messed this up because we were it. supposed to go in December. We were going to go to the... Scotland. Well, no, they were going to go. Oh, okay. But in December, we were going to go, the four of us, to Ukraine. Oh, wow. Um, there were a couple other places. Romania, we were going to go to Dracula's Castle. Oh, wow. So we had that planned, but it looks like that's Man, not And travel and live music, this one's getting me where it hurts. It's just a bummer. I had Gabe uh, in earlier, and he used to, uh, well, he writes the music, uh, one of the music uh, uh, articles for Creative Loafing, but he used to own a store, and we're talking about all these great concerts. And, I, you know, that's that's my thing. You know, your thing is working out and all this. My thing, my, my happy space is going to a show by myself or going to a show with... I have to go with someone who really loves the band as much as I do, or I'd rather just go by myself because I don't want to be worrying about whether or not the other person's enjoying themselves. Right. But, you know, with this going on, it's just been so... I mean, you've only recently been able to go back to a gym, right? Yeah, they, I mean, gyms have been closed, and even now, it's a little touch and go. I, I try to consider myself a responsible citizen, so... But it's something I feel like uh, I'm naturally a, a fat kid. I mean, before I started going to the gym, I, I probably needed to lose 30 or 40 pounds, and right. I lost them. But if I don't go to the gym, I have zero 
willpower with eating. Right. So I'll blow up like a blimp. So for health I said reasons, CrossFit. Is it is it CrossFit or is it that type of thing or is it something different? It is not CrossFit. It's a class. It's a class. It's group class based group training. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's not CrossFit. Well, there's been a recent kind of uh, big thing with CrossFit because of I guess the creator or somebody involved kind of had some interesting uh, statements that they made. And I know like Reebok pulled away from them mm-hmm. and all these they kind of split that market. So yeah, interested to see how that'll go. Yeah, well, they, they just sold. And again, I, I don't do CrossFit. Sure, yeah. To, I'm just... But I saw that and I think he called it um, Floyd 19. Oh, Like yeah. an insensitive comment, yeah. where, where, you know, calling the oh, economic It would be like calling it Kung Flu or something. Yeah, like I mean, it was like no one would. It right was a total do. asshole comment. Right, right. But I think there's been so much pressure that he actually just sold CrossFit. I saw it in the news today. Oh, that, sure. That the deal was uh, closed and he you sold just it. Gotta, you got to watch your mouth. I mean, you look at uh, Elon Musk when he was on Joe Rogan and he was smoking pot and like tanked the stocks and all the <laughs> shareholders wanted to get rid of him. And yeah, you know, these, these people that create these things, they need to keep them in a bubble and not let them talk that's to right, anybody. That's right. That's right. So uh, now I know you're doing, uh, I don't know how much of your practice it makes up, but you're doing a good amount of Guardian work, right? Uh, I don't know if I do a good amount. I've probably done two, three dozen cases. Well, that's a good uh, amount. But I usually have at least one on the books. It started, I was doing one pro bono case and keeping one pro bono case on the books all the time. Right. And I quickly learned that when you do something pro bono, at least this is my experience, the work involved is becomes overwhelming oh. because there's no limit, there's no skin in the game, and I felt like you used the word whipping post before. I mean, so I just stopped doing Which it. Which is probably now not a good word to use. I'm, I'm thinking about well, that. post, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so well, I, the pirates I, used it too. So we'll, we'll yeah, we'll, yeah. But I, it's I, I had constantly like having to th- like I was just talking. Who was I just talking to? Uh, realtors and people in real estate are now being told not to use the word master bedroom anymore. Because of the oh, lineage of it coming from, you know, yeah. farms and the master's quarters and all this stuff. And so right. it's interesting, you know, we don't realize how ingrained in our vernacular and vocabulary in our life, you know, these these antiquated things are. And so it's it's kind of interesting. But anyway, I digress. Um, so with the Guardian work, do you like it? I, I, it seems to me, and I was just having this conversation with Brian Bowes yesterday, uh, There, even now there's kind of a vacuum of a lot of good ones. I mean, there's a handful, three, four, five, that everybody kind of uses all the mm-hmm. time. And then when you start getting into other counties, you're kind of having to ask around. But it, it seems like there's definitely a need, but that need isn't being filled. And I'm wondering if it's because of what you're describing, that it's kind of, in a lot of ways, thankless. Um, would you would you agree with that position? or? Well, I, I think I started doing the Guardian work because I thought it would be a way to make a difference. And as I coupled that with pro bono, right? Yeah. I was doing it to try to help. Right. And, and I quickly learned as lawyers, we take one side and we advocate for our client and we're team client. Right. But as the Guardian, I had to listen to both sides. And I, I think if I'm honest with myself, I've lost a little more faith in the human condition because yeah. it, it's a little bit disturbing, disgusting and oftentimes deplorable how parents act. Um, Well, I was just talking about this with Mike uh, Lundy earlier today, and it came up in talking with his brother, Matt, who I'm sure you probably know. He's the quadro guru mm -hmm. locally. But really just a disenfranchisement with the way that the legal system has set people up, uh, especially in these time-sharing battles. And, you know, I was asking Mike, you know, what do you think, is the answer. And he had an interesting suggestion 
uh, of removing that part of it from the court system altogether and having it be more of a health-related, therapeutic counseling, not set these people up as adversary, adversarial parties in a, in a litigation perspective, kind of have them more in a treatment and health perspective, mm -hmm. uh, much in the way that uh, you know they think we should be treating uh, substance use and abuse as opposed to a criminal act, more of a health issue and treat it in, in that manner. So interesting take. I don't know if that's the answer or not, but definitely an interesting take. But you know, becoming disenfranchised, I, I, I could 100% see it. But I, I will say, uh, earlier on in my practice, I was... I had a couple of bad experiences with social investigators and you don't want to, you know, there's kind of a big chasm between mm -hmm. social investigators and guardian and litem for a number of reasons that I won't get into and bore people here. But obviously, uh, at least for me, guardian and litem is the way to go. And I've gotten to the point now where I, I encourage every case almost to do it. And unfortunately, not every case is equipped financially to have a guardian and litem. But, you know, basically I say, look, you can roll the dice for eight hours in a trial and hope the judge gets it right. Or you can have this person sit down and talk to you. Mm -hmm. You can have this person sit down and talk to your child if the child's old enough. Talk to the other parent. Watch the child or children play with, play with each parent. What does the refrigerator look like? How are they dressed? How are they cleaned? Maybe you're talking to third-party collaterals, the pediatrician, the grandmother, the grandfather, all these other things. And you can get, not that it's perfect, but it's just set up better to get a better result, to, to actually kind of get closer to the quote-unquote best interests of the child than a court can do in a very, you know, an eight-hour hearing when you back out bathroom breaks, you know, housekeeping matters at the beginning, closing arguments at the end, cross-examinations. An eight-hour trial is maybe two and a half hours, three hours of evidence. Mm -hmm. And to have your life and your liberty and your, your time with your child and your, you know, to be decided in that amount of time, it's just very difficult to get a good result that way. Yeah. Sorry, I just I just filibustered. But no, um, you're good. But I mean, yeah. Lundy is a smart man, and I think what you're saying makes sense because also the rules of evidence hamstring a lot of the information. As a right. guardian, yeah, I'm just talking to people, and I'm getting the whole picture. If you were in court, the judge is not allowed to do that. Like you know. Uh, so this does get back to why guardian and litem and the hearsay waiver is such an important thing. We're kind of getting into mm -hmm. deeper water now, but uh, a lot of evidence that normally wouldn't come before a judge in a family law matter can come to, uh, before a judge by way of a guardian ad litem who can talk to these people and consider these things and include them into their uh, report and recommendation to the court. So what one of the, the best things, in my view, about a guardian ad litem is it gives the children a voice without involving them as a party in the case. Yeah. Um, because, you know, the courts don't like to have the kids come in and testify between mom and dad, but they can sit down with a guardian ad litem and, and kind of have a conversation and be heard. So I, I think that's one of the real big reasons that you guys are so important. Agree. Um, is this, are you getting close to the end of your career in law? What's going to be your next thing that you're going to do? Yeah, I've lived many lives already. I know. I you're, know. Is, are, you getting, are you getting fidgety? Are you getting itchy to do something else? Uh, I, I don't know. I have a couple uh, business ideas I'm always floating and working on. Do you have any kids things. in the house? or, or? No, just the grandkids. Okay. Yeah. So no, no kids in the house. It's my wife and I. My wife works for Humana. Uh, she's How'd got you meet a, her? I met her when I was a bouncer at a bar uh, going to college. So uh, at UT or yes, what? no, no, uh, St. Pete College. What I was bar very was it? Young. Uh, Joe Dugans. Joe Dugans. I think I went. To, 
Was Joe Dugan an actual person? I feel like I went to Joe high school Dugan, with Joe Dugan. Joe Dugan was a bit famous baseball player. Okay. Because there was the Dugan family that went to Northeast High, and they were all famous like for street fighters and stuff. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Different Dugan. Different Dugan, yeah. I, I, Joe Dugan didn't own the place. Okay, it was his namesake, name. okay. but it was on uh, Highway 60, Gulf okay. of Bay Boulevard, okay. and US 19. Okay. It was a really, really hopping place back in the early 90s. Okay. And uh, I actually, there was always a line at the door. And I saw her, and she was, seemed to be normal uh, yeah. in the scope of nightclubbing. Yeah. And asked her to have coffee one day, and uh, that was it. Nice. Yeah, we hit it off, and uh, we did Do you have oil. kids together? No, we do not. Okay. Yeah, we decided not to. So, I mean, being in a household by yourself already at 50, you've, you've, you kind of set yourself up good to have a lot of light. You know, I'm looking at by the time my son's out of the house, I'm going to be in my 60s and probably, if not dead of a heart attack, in a, a wheelchair or something. So... <laughs> That's pretty awesome. I mean, you're traveling. What else do you do? I mean, obviously, fitness is a big part of your life. Um, travel, uh, you know, is that it? Or do you guys have other things that you're into, cooking, that sort of thing? We are very active with our grandkids by virtue of see the my wife. Yeah. So we, we literally, you say we have the house to ourselves, but we have two sets of grandkids, one on with one child, two with the other. So we have the grandkids at least, well, the COVID has interrupted this to yeah. some degree, but we're either going over there or having them, I would say at least one weekend a month, sometimes two, sometimes three. So we spend a lot of time with the grandkids. Travel has been nixed yeah. for the COVID, but we like to travel at least twice a year. Um, that's how, do you, how, how, are, how is it with grandkids versus children? I always hear the uh, analogy, it's like a boat. It's better to have friends with boats than to have your own boat. It's kind of, you know, you get to play, have all the fun part with the kids, but then they go home at the end of the night. I think every human being has a certain uh, level of energy that they can expend on children. Yeah. And once you've used it, and I think my wife and I used it when our children are younger. Right. There's no way. We had our grandson for an entire weekend. Uh-huh. I think we had him Friday, or no, Saturday night, Sunday night, and Monday night. Yeah. By Tuesday morning, we Just both exhausted. needed a two-week nap. We Bone were tired. toasted. Yeah. And he's true. two. It's so, true. I, you know, I really, I, you know, one of the, the good things about, I, I talk a lot about the evils of practicing family law, but I think one of the good things about family law is it always keeps me alert to how I am as a father, how I am as a, as a spouse. Not that I'm perfect and I, you know, have my good days and my bad, but, you know, especially early on, I remember getting out of trials and mediation and just calling my wife and saying, please, if I ever do this, just come and talk to me. You know, if I ever, you know, I I don't mean anything bad, but it's just like, I never want to be here. I never want to be in this position. You know, I want to be as involved with my children as I can. I want to have every moment. So, you know, as much as I work, when I come home at 5, 5 5.36 o'clock at night, I really try and take over as much as I can. And my wife's great. I mean, my wife does a ton of stuff, but, you know, I'm trying to do the bath with them. I'm trying to get them dinner and, you know, they want to go out and play, which sucks right now because there's very little places you can go out and play with them. You can't take them to a playground. You can't mm-hmm. take them. So, you know, a lot of bike riding, a lot of playing in the pool. But, uh, you know, I get them, if I'm lucky, I get them to bed by 10, 1030 at night. And I have about five, 10 minutes mm-hmm. to like look at my phone and then I'm just done. And then it's back at it again. And so, yeah. I, you know, the working out thing is really, there was a period of time before children that I was really into jujitsu and kickboxing and I was doing that pretty regularly and I was in good shape. But as soon as the kids entered the picture, finding that time in my life was, it's just very difficult to do. And I, yeah. even now I get up early, but I just have that guilt. I have that abiding guilt. I could go to the gym or I could go get my billing updated or I could go work on this file. And I always kind of let work take priority, which I know is going to get me in the butt sooner or later, but 
Well, it's an it's an old cliche and it's overused, but you only have so much time, right? And I I think uh, I just I, wish it balanced a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. I, I consider myself lucky. I think at an earlier age, I realized that time was important. It's the most valuable thing you can give to anybody. So I like you. I mean, I commend you for doing that with your kids because you can't get that time back. Right. As time goes on. Yeah. You know, my daughter and I we used to have a monthly father daughter date. You know, now she's married, she has a child. We still try to get together, but it's just not possible. So those memories and those things that we did for all those years and that time that I put in right. to that relationship is priceless. And people always ask me, of all your lives you've had and your jobs, what's the best one? And I think being a dad is the best job I ever had. It really is. It really is. I just, uh, you know, I am over the moon in love with my, my, da- my daughter, Stella, and my son, Bo. I go home and play with them. And it's just it's just an amazing thing. They bring me so much joy. I mean, my wife obviously too. But I just get so tickled by both mm-hmm. of them, and it's it's going too quick. Yeah. You know, it, it, as much as I would like to still be, you know, my parents by the time I was out of the house, their health started to be in decline, and I don't think they got to enjoy their golden years as much as maybe they had hoped. I'm hoping that maybe I can right some of those wrongs in my life, but. Uh, I'm I'm loving the kids right now. But you definitely got to find some time. And I, I, I'm I'm being hypocritical because when my kids were younger, I, I put on a ton of weight and yeah. I just couldn't find the yeah. time to work out. And my priority was I'd rather spend time with kids than work out. If something had to go, that was going to be it. But I literally had this horrible health screening at J.P. Morgan. They used yeah. to do it for free when I was 40. And they wouldn't let me leave. They, they wouldn't said, give you insurance. They oh, <laughs> no, they literally wouldn't let me leave the health screen. Yeah. They said, your blood pressure is high. Your, your good, tri- your good things yeah. are low. Yeah. Your bad ones are high. Yeah. And you need to sit here. And, you know, and they, they said, you're going to die. Oh, like, man. You're, for, you're only 40. And yeah. you're overweight. You need to what was your start. thing? Sweets, salt, beer, booze? Uh, all salt, of it. potato yes. chips. I, I love junk food, and I think it's the volume of food. Yeah, I'm a fast eater. Yeah, and I, I think studies have shown that if you eat quickly, yeah, the feeling of you don't fullness, register. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, but you know, that's at that point, they literally kind of shook me by the shoulders, and I, I realized like I want to live. Life right. is great. I don't want to die. So I, I took their advice. I tried to change diet. Got with this gym, and I've been sticking with it ever since. I hate going to the gym. Do you really? Oh, I, I, I mean, when I'm there, I, I think I enjoy it. You seem to have just fully kind of you bought in. You're you're all in. Yeah, exercise. I would much rather be sitting at home, yeah. watching TV, yeah. or sitting on the dock, or listening yeah. to some music. But for me, it's I make it a job. Yeah, and I am going to go to the gym these days because the doctor has told me you right. need to do this to do for it. your health. What's the diet? Uh, I do the. Uh, Greek diet, sure. yeah. uh, or what do they call it? Mediterranean diet. Mediterranean, or, yeah. or there's another one, DASH diet. Yeah, yeah. But just low salt, a lot of fruits, a lot of vegetables. And what I learned is it's not it's not always cutting things out of your diet. It's, it's changing control. what you're eating. Too. Yeah. You got to yeah. eat a lot of fruit. You got to eat some grains. You got to eat vegetables. So if you're cutting out all the salt, but you're not replacing it with those good things, you don't get the you're full benefit. You're missing something. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Yeah, I, that's that's one of the recriminate, daily recriminations I have is thinking about <laughs> what I should be doing, and you know, hopefully, hopefully, I'll get back to it. I always read these articles like Forbes and Fortune, and you know what the top five CEOs do, and it's like well, I get up at three and I right. go to work out, and then I do this, and then and it's like I get up pretty early, but three, you're you're getting into you're yeah. you're a little bit obsessed, a little bit of a sociopath. I don't know what time do you get up. 
I'm usually up by 5.30. That's not bad for a military guy. Yeah, 5.30. That's sleeping in almost for a military yeah. no, guy. No alarm, though. That's what time I just, wake just up. Just wake I literally up wake up. It's a late. I, the other day, I slept in until 6.30, and my wife, are you okay? Are you okay? You got you COVID? Okay? And you got the yeah, Rona? You got that Rona? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what's your morning routine? I get up, and I 